Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome back to Becoming Educated and this week I welcome back Bruce Robertson. Bruce is the rector of Berwickshire High School in the Scottish Borders and is the author of the brilliant The Teaching Delusion Trilogy. I last interviewed Bruce last year back in May 2020 on The Teaching Delusion, why teaching in our schools isn't good enough and how we can make it better and today He's come back on to chat about the Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back. Also, on the same day, he released the Teaching Delusion 3, Power Up Your Pedagogy to Make Up the Trilogy. As I mentioned, today we explore the Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back, and we kick off by talking about the curriculum. I asked Bruce what delusions we have around the curriculum, and his response? Lots. And I can't wait for you to hear what he has to say about that. I ask him why it's important that we are specific about the content of our curriculum. As he writes, content is the curriculum. Therefore, curriculum plans need to make specific content clear. Clear. We discuss the role of knowledge. And he explains why all subject, why knowledge sorry, is the bedrock of all subjects. So we need to be clear about the content we teach. And he goes on to explain what he means by the curriculum being knowledge-based, skills-orientated, and experiences-infused. I certainly enjoyed listening to him talk about that. I asked for his thoughts on interdisciplinary learning, which I really, really enjoyed hearing, hearing about. We discussed what should be included in our curriculum, and that is a debate that we certainly need to get into, especially here in Scotland. And I ask him how curriculum is often confused with pedagogy and discuss the relationship between curriculum being the what and pedagogy being the how. Then we explore the idea of best bets and the importance of educational research and cognitive science as we explore 10 pedagogical principles that can guide our teaching and prevent these delusions from returning. Bruce is an excellent guest. I love the way he articulates his ideas. And if you've read any of his books, Bruce writes exactly in the same way he speaks, which is a truly remarkable trait. I really enjoyed speaking with Bruce and I can't wait to have him back on again to speak about the Teaching Delusion 3, Power Up Your Pedagogy. But right now, grab the dog lead, grab a cup of tea, grab the notepad and listen to my conversation with Bruce Robertson as we explore the Teaching Delusion 2 teaching strikes back. Bruce Robertson, thanks so much for coming back on to Becoming Educated. How are you this evening? Thanks very much for having me, Darren. Great to be on again. Yeah, I'm great. Really good. Thanks very much. Well, today we're going to unpack your second book of the trilogy. So congratulations on publishing the trilogy just last week. 
And we're going to look at Teaching Delusion 2, Teaching Strikes Back. But before they do that, do that we last spoke um, about the first edition of the trilogy, The Teaching Delusion. What have you been up to since the last time we spoke? Well, quite a bit. <laughs> quite a bit. Um, when did we last speak? Probably um, May, May, June um, 2020. The book had just come out in March 2020. Um, so in that time, um, I, I was doing a lot more reading myself. You know that um, I'm a strong um, advocate of professional reading. So I was doing a lot of reading um, at that time. Um, I was appointed rector of Berwickshire High School in the Scottish Borders. Um, at the end of June last year. So I took up post in August. So I'm delighted about that. It's a tremendous honor, a tremendous privilege to be the rector of, of Berwickshire High School. Um, and I started to write. Uh, I started to write a sequel to The Teaching Delusion. Uh, that was in its genesis supposed to be a book of around 10 to 20,000 words. That's what I suggested to my publisher I was going to do. Uh, and then it got a little bit bigger and a bit bigger and a bit bigger. And before I knew it, it was approaching 100,000 words. And it's about that point that I thought, this isn't one book, this is two. So The Teaching Delusion 2 became The Teaching Delusion 2 and 3. And uh, yeah, we're going to chat about number two, Teaching Strikes Back. We certainly are. Maybe in future we'll come back to Teaching Delusion 3. But let's talk about Teaching Delusion 2. And it kicks off in, in great style talking about the curriculum. So can I ask you, Bruce, what delusions do we have around the curriculum? Lots. And I think it's really important to call them out because um, I guess in, in the first book, uh, I was agreeing with Dylan William or certainly it's something that Dylan William had said at one time that if it came to some metaphorical battle between pedagogy and curriculum, then pedagogy would always trump curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, and I probably do still stand by that, but I think the importance of curriculum, um, well, I, I've just become increasingly aware of just how important curriculum is. Um, they're probably equally important, curriculum and pedagogy. Curriculum is the what and pedagogy is the how. And you need both to be really strong if you're going to have really strong teaching and learning. So what are the delusions? Um, well, well, first of all, it is understanding that, I think, that, that it's the what curriculum is what we're teaching. So it's becoming clear in our own minds about what specifically we are teaching, not having a loose feel for what that might be, uh, but really specifically, um, what, are, what is the knowledge? What are the skills, the attributes? and that we want students to learn? What are the specific experiences that we want them to have? This is all the what. Um, and really where I go with this is talking about the difference between a knowledge-based curriculum and so, what some people would call a skills-based curriculum. And I argue in the book, there's no such thing as a skills-based curriculum. All curricula are knowledge-based. Um, some curricula or aspects of it the knowledge is more declarative. It's about facts and concepts in different areas. And it's more procedural knowledge, knowledge of how to do things. But it doesn't matter if we're talking about PE, art, chemistry, history, English. All curricula are knowledge-based. And I go on to argue skills-orientated because we're not learning 
about things and how to do things for the sake of it. We're learning about things and how to do things so, so that we can do things with that. So knowledge-based, skills-orientated and experiences, experience-infused is how I describe the curriculum, the curriculum that we should be aiming for um, in teaching delusion too. So the, the biggest delusion probably is, is, is around the distinction between knowledge and skills. And you'll get some people arguing for one uh, or for the other. And actually, um, I think this is a Tom Sherrington quote, they are, they are two sides of the same coin. Uh, you need knowledge in order to be able to do things with it. So they're equally important, but all, but all curricula are knowledge based. And I think if we take the context of Scottish education, uh, we have gone wrong here uh, because we have not been clear enough in the specific knowledge that we need to be teaching students so that they can do specific things with it. Um, rather, uh, with the best of intentions, there's been a focus on skills, which I think has led us down a blind alley, not least because the skills that are often talked about are not specific skills. They are uh, what are often termed transferable skills like problem solving and creativity mm -hmm. um, and what I'm really arguing as others have done before me is that these skills are not transferable they are domain specific um, a, a specific skill uh, relies on specific knowledge and just because you can solve problems in one knowledge domain or be particularly creative in one knowledge domain does not mean that that skill is transferable across other domains. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really the crux of, of what I'm getting at uh, in this section about delusions in the curriculum. I think, uh, I, think I identify six in total, but, but those are probably the main ones. So I like the idea of transferable skills and, and you talk a little bit about the idea of just looking it up so to, to go on for that, you need knowledge to look things up. So why then is it important that we are specific about the content of our curriculum? Yeah, for lots of reasons. Um, if we take the, the, the just look it up, can you just look things up? Well, well, in theory you can, but quite clearly that slows thinking down mm -hmm. because every time we're having to look something up, um, we're outsourcing the knowledge to an external source. If we had it in our long-term memory so that we could pull it out as and when required, mm -hmm. then we could understand things a lot quicker and therefore we could understand things a lot more. So if, if we are not committing knowledge to long-term memory, then it limits us in terms of how much we can understand and how quickly we can understand it. So I'm arguing that one of the, the key functions of the curriculum is to teach students a broad, deep body of knowledge so that they can better understand the world around them. Mm -hmm. uh, that links to employability, but it links to something that's, that's much, much more important than that, which I think is, is cultural literacy. Uh, just understanding uh, and appreciating, enjoying, and being able to contribute the world around us. I'm arguing that the more we know about more things, um, the more empowered we are um, to, to get the most out of life. So I give some examples about my own education um, and, I, and I feel um, a curriculum which was not um, rich enough in the knowledge it was teaching me. And so I walk into a museum, an art gallery, I'm reading about something in the paper and I don't understand it. Why not? Because I don't know enough about it. 
Mm-hmm. Now, it's true that I could go away and look up a lot of that stuff myself. That would take time, effort. It's unlikely that I'm going to put that in. Uh, it would be far better if I'd been taught these things at school. And we often hear students will say at school, oh, well, what's the point of learning that? That's not particularly useful. Um, well, maybe not at that time. But as I argue later on in the book, uh, knowledge will often become useful. And we're very, very appreciative of the fact that we were taught that at school. But had we been given the option, uh, we might have said, no, thanks. I'd rather do something that I enjoy. Uh, in the short term, fine, great. You think that's good. But in the long term, it's actually done you a disservice. Certainly. And you mentioned there about cultural literacy. So can I ask you to share a little bit more of that and, and share the importance of, of shared knowledge amongst our students in Scotland and all countries? Yeah. So I think cultural literacy is really just about um, understanding what is going on in the world around us. Um, for example, if we were to pick up a newspaper, that we would understand that depending on which paper it is, it's likely to have a, a left or a, light, a right leaning bias. We need to understand that. That's about being culturally literate. So we need to understand what we are reading, what the, what, what the topic is about, and then we need to be able to understand the arguments that are being made, and we need to keep in mind whether or not there is there could be a bias with that. And this all comes back to how much we know ourselves. So if we want our students to be critical thinkers, um, and I don't think I've met anybody who, who doesn't think that that's a key purpose of school, then what we need to be doing is giving them more to think with. That's a Dylan William line. And I think that's, that's very, very powerful and important. No, it certainly is. So at this point, Bruce, can I then change gear just ever so slightly? And you mentioned it earlier on about this conflation between curriculum and pedagogy. So, so how has the curriculum been confused with pedagogy? Yeah, so curriculum is what mm-hmm. and pedagogy is how. Now, the what can be taught in an almost infinite number of ways. But that doesn't mean that the what will always be taught in the best way. Um, We need to be considering as teachers um, what is the best way to teach particular things. Um, I'll go to the Scottish context again. And what we have um, in the curriculum is is a set of what's called experiences and outcomes. if, if you work in Scotland, that would be very, very familiar to you. If, if, if you don't, well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So um, sciences, first level. So this is primary two to primary four. Uh, by researching, I can describe the position and function of the skeleton and major organs of the human body and discuss what I need to do to keep them healthy. There's a what in there which is to do with the position and function of the major organs. So I think that's helpful, but I think it would be even more helpful if it was even more specific. For example, this and this and this. But the pedagogy is, con- is blended with it. The curriculum is blended with pedagogy because it says by researching. Now I, will, I argue in this book and, and in the book before it that research as a pedagogy is unlikely to be the most effective pedagogy in the early stages of a learning sequence. Um, In the early stages of any learning sequence, students are novices in that knowledge domain. 
And the evidence is pretty strong that the most effective way to teach anybody who is a novice in a particular knowledge domain is through what I would term specific teaching approaches, direct interactive instruction fused with formative assessment. As students develop that knowledge base and become more and more expert themselves, then they are in a far better position to lead their own learning. So that's where what I call non-specific teaching comes in. Now, research would fit that brief, letting students go off and discover a bit more themselves. But once they're armed, if you like, with enough knowledge to, to be able to do that. So, so that's where I think we're going wrong here. Um, there's no need, in my view, to specify the pedagogy. You disempower teachers. It's unnecessary. And actually it holds learning back because what we're seeing here is probably um, a less effective pedagogy, the researching, than the direct interactive instruction and formative assessment that I'm suggesting. Certainly, thank you so much for, for thinking that clarifying that difference between curriculum and pedagogy so we're not going to go back a little bit to curriculum because we've discussed there and, and you're about the need to be specific with our content and you're right that content is the curriculum therefore curriculum plans need to make specific content clear but there's wonderful uh, writing in the book about curriculum planning and how curriculum planning needs to start with the rationale and what sorts of things Sorry, so I'll start that again with uh, start with the rationale. Can I ask you what sort of things could we include in our rationale? And then could you go on to share about the four levels of curriculum organization? Yeah, so th this is chapter three, Darren. Yeah, it's called um, a content rich curriculum. So I'm arguing that the curriculum we should be developing in all of our schools is one which is knowledge based, skills orientated and experiences infused. That's a bit of a mouthful. So uh, you can summarize that, I think, by saying a content-rich curriculum. That's the terminology I'm going with. And a rationale is just setting out the big picture um, and it's helping to inform any decision about why we've decided to include something in our curriculum. Because I go on in chapter four to discuss uh, what we could or might, yeah, what we, what we could include. And I really do argue that um, while there probably is certain core things that we, we absolutely want to get in to, to any, any national curriculum, uh, there are other things that are well worth debating um, as a school community. What we need to do is we need to have a bit of a steer uh, to help us with that because effectively we could put anything in a curriculum. So, so we need something to anchor us in some way. Uh, the rationale that I'm suggesting um, is, is the rationale that, that I have developed with my school community for, for my school. Um, we want our students to, one, learn the knowledge they need to understand the world around them. Mm -hmm. Two, develop the skills they need to continue to learn and contribute to society. Three, develop attributes which reflect our school values. Four, achieve a portfolio of qualifications that open the doors they need them to open and reflect their very best. And five, love learning for the sake of learning, viewing it as interesting, exciting and empowering. For me, any decision about what we may or may not include in the curriculum needs to come back to the curriculum rationale. And, and this is the rationale that I think is, 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 an, is important and useful for us to do that. 
I love that last one. Love learning for the sake of learning, viewing it as interesting, exciting, and empowering. So can I ask you then to go on, and you go on in that chapter to talk about the, the four levels of curriculum organization, and I found that a great learning experience when I yeah. um, read that. Can you share what they are, please? So what I found is that when you talk about curriculum, um, a lot of people think what you mean is the timetable. Uh, yeah, they, they, they equate curriculum and timetable, but, but curriculum is an awful lot more than the timetable. I argue four levels for the curriculum. And the first is the macro curriculum, which is the subjects that we offer and the time that we give to those subjects. So effectively, the macro curriculum is the timetable. But the layer below that is the meso curriculum. So within any subject, what topics will students be studying? And what are the subtopics within that? The level below that is the micro curriculum. So that is the, the specific content. And um, if you like uh, the example that we, we talked about, um, about, about the skeleton, um, the position and the function. Now we're getting into the micro curriculum. Then. And then the nano curriculum is the meticulous detail of that. So if you like, when I said, well, identify which organs, uh, specifically. Uh, now, now we're getting into real specific detail. And I argue that um, something like a knowledge organizer, which I think is in incredibly useful for a number of reasons. One, because it really helps teachers to become clear in their own mind uh, what it is that they want students to be learning. And two, uh, they're an incredibly useful um, independent learning resource for students. Uh, the nano curriculum, if you like, that meticulous detail, that a knowledge organizer is, is an example of that. Right, thank you. And we've explored a little bit about uh, content in the curriculum. And, and you write a great line about, although each subject in the curriculum is different, there is commonality in the fact that all subjects can be thought of as knowledge-based. And we spoke about that earlier. I love that um, three ideas you've got there that curriculum is knowledge-based, skills-orientated, and experiences infused. So how does clarity in the content of the curriculum allow us to create a, a progression model within our curriculum? I think if you go to the, the opposite position, so that you don't have clarity in what is being taught um, in a particular topic, in a particular year group, um, if you're working in primary school, you don't know what's being taught in secondary. If you're working in secondary, you don't know what's being taught in primary. How can there be any coherent curriculum here? How can you actually start to make links? How can you refer back and forward? How can you have any interdisciplinary learning of any kind if you don't know what is being taught in the different subjects of your school? Um, we need clarity in the content of the curriculum so that we know that particular things are being taught and when they are being taught. We, we can have confidence in that. And then later on in the learning sequence, maybe later on that year or a different year or in a different subject, we can refer back. We can ask students to recall. And we know that recall is very, very important for learning. But if I'm teaching in secondary and I have no idea what's being taught in primary, well, I can't refer back to it. Um, I'll be guessing. Mm -hmm. um, I might, I might replicate things that have already been taught. And while overlearning um, can be a good thing, um, that's not overlearning which is designed. That's just overlearning coming about by chance. 
And that sort of overlearning typically leads to boredom because mm. students will be, well, well, we've already done that. And the flip side of that is that a particular topic, um, a particular knowledge area might never get taught. So I use the example of my own school experience here, uh, got through 18 years of school without being taught anything about the Second World War. Now, you can argue whether or not you think it is important mm -hmm. to be taught something about the Second World War, and that's where the debate comes in. And that's where I think curriculum discussions become so exciting. But my own view would be that it is important that at some point in your schooling, you were taught a little bit about the Second World War. I wasn't. And I would suggest that one of the reasons I wasn't is because the curriculum wasn't clearly mapped out. I, I love that. I love those sort of discussions about what they include. And you, and you wrote some, some great ones. I think in the book, the first one was learning about the British Empire. I mean, yeah. that, was, that would be a fascinating thing to learn. And I also got some bits, but not, not a lot of bits. So it kind of brings us to a really nice um, idea about um, what should, we should include in our curriculum mm -hmm. and include that idea of like, should we think about what we didn't learn in school, but wish we did? And how important is it that teachers as subject experts are involved in discussing what goes into our curriculum? Yeah, incredibly important. Um, I feel my own view is that there should be a core national curriculum, which is far more specific uh, than it currently is, say, in Scotland. But then there should be that, that flexibility to be able to go beyond that and create something which is more unique um, for your own context taking into account your, uh, the, the passions of, of your own staff, for example. Uh, this is what chapter four is all about. Um, and chapter four um, begins with a discussion about the usefulness of the idea of useful. Uh, but it really ends up concluding that if, if, if all we include in the curriculum um, is content which we think will be useful, um, we'll, we'll probably be stripping back an awful lot of content that actually would students would enjoy, uh, find interesting, and which, which some will make use of later in life, but, but many won't. But is that, is that a reason not to include it? I, I would argue not, because we can't second guess what our students are going to go on to do in life. Um, so then it goes into an exploration of interesting. And I think there's more in that. I think um, that, that's, that's a more useful steer because the subject experts, the teachers, they have far clearer idea of what students are more or less likely to find interesting. So I think that becomes more useful, but it, it all builds up really to um, a set of content cues towards the end of the chapter. So I'm just suggesting these as overarching steers um, to help shape the debate about what gets included in the curriculum. So I suggest um, one, the building blocks that students will need if they decide to specialize in this subject in future. And teachers would, would discuss that. What would these building blocks be? Um, the big concepts and ideas in subjects where this is applicable. Uh, the major works of major people in subjects where this is applicable. The knowledge students are likely to need to understand, appreciate, and look after the world around them and beyond. The knowledge students are likely to need to understand, appreciate, and look after themselves and others. Key dates and timelines key vocabulary, including the etymology of words. And lastly, knowledge and experiences that subject teachers believe are interesting because they are the experts. 
Certainly, I like that last one about subjects believe are interesting, and it brings on to what you you go on to talk about about community construction and, and a curriculum construction cycle. Can I ask you to talk briefly on a curriculum construction cycle, please? Yeah. So the curriculum construction cycle that's really born out of the idea that um, once you've created a curriculum, it's it's not fixed. Your curriculum is always fluid, and um, there should be ongoing debate. Um, about the content that is included. Um, the longer you're working in a particular school, hopefully the more you start to learn about the curriculum across the school. So you become aware um, that a particular text is being taught in English, for example, and you think, okay, actually we could make some natural links to that. Um, so that, that influences then what we've but what we decide to include in, in our particular subject so that we can, we can make that link. Um, nothing is off the table, but nothing is definitely on the table either. So the cycle really, Darren, is about proposing content and then debating content. That debate should include the voice of teachers, of course, but the voice of school leaders, including the head teacher as well. Um, as the head teacher, I should have a pretty strong grasp of what the specific content is that is being taught in my school. And I should be able to influence that in some way. My voice should be heard as, as part of the debate. So too should the voice of students, so too should the voice of parents. And uh, we're trying to involve the voice of as many people as we can. But let's not lose sight of the fact that teachers are the subject e experts and they have the best idea of, of what is most likely to be interesting. It's a cycle because we keep, we keep coming back to it. Um, we keep revisiting. We need, we need to plan time in the school year to do that. Uh, otherwise, it probably won't happen. Um, but it's this idea that it's, it's ever-evolving. I love that idea of, and I think I've mentioned that with, with other people on the podcast, that curriculum's never done. But I'm getting excited about this idea of... of debating and discussing things that we could put in our curriculum and, and being as specific as possible. Mm -hmm. Before we move on to uh, the pedagogy aspects in, in the book, I really like what you write about interdisciplinary learning, because as you mm -hmm. well know, interdisciplinary learning has been something of a hot topic in Scotland in, in the past decade or so. Um, can you briefly share your thinking on interdisciplinary learning, please? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually just going to read a little bit from that chapter, I think, because that, that just captures it as well as anything. Um, I say, at its best, interdisciplinary learning helps students make knowledge connections and deepen their learning. For example, links can be made between a topic on the solar system in science, Roman mythology in history or English literature, and Gustav Holst's The Planets in Music. Uh, while links aren't essential, they can help to enrich learning and through the process of revisiting content and making connections, make the content more memorable. I think there's a lot in that. Um, the links aren't essential. Mm -hmm. I think that's quite important to stress. They do enrich and they can help to make content more memorable, but not essential. So if we have issues with the curriculum, say in our school or nationally, uh, is, is the place to go interdisciplinary learning is that the area that we should decide that we're going to focus on is that going to be the fix i would argue no um without a clear content rich curriculum mapped out you can't make 
the, the real links that we're talking about. But if you have mapped it out, well, for the example I give in the book is, is to do with animal farm. So you know that to really understand and get the most out of animal farm, well then a knowledge of the Rus Rus Russian revolution, that's necessary. So that, that knowledge that animal farm is being taught at a particular point influences when in history, uh, you would be teaching the Russian Revolution. If you haven't specified your content, you may have in the curriculum, you may have some students who know quite a bit about the Russian Revolution and get a lot out of Animal Farm, or I'm going to go back to my own school experience, me, who knew nothing about the R Russian Revolution and didn't really have a clue what, what it was talking about. Now, my English teacher um, tried to help me with that and, and, and was successful to a point, but it would have been far, far better if there had been structured interdisciplinary learning so that either the two things were taking place in tandem or the one that needed to come before the other actually did come before the other. Um, too often interdisciplinary learning becomes um, tokenistic and gimmicky. Uh, if I go back to the book, um, I say too often interdisciplinary learning becomes nothing more than tokenism and gimmicks. For example, a school might run a thematic day on Africa, or they might plan an interdisciplinary topic on water, which goes as follows. The science department teaches changes of state. The maths department includes some problems involving water. The art department gets students to draw pictures of rivers. The English department teaches watership down. These are, <laughs> these are, these are, these are not real meaningful links that are actually going to do what interdisciplinary learning needs to do, which is to really enrich and to help make content more memorable. You see, I like that idea about, about natural links. I read a, an article on, on a, as part of the Hist Hist Historical Association of a History Department that were teaching chronologically, but the English Department were teaching written works chronologically, chronologically through time. So there was clear links of this is the history, these are the key dates, the key people, the key ideas. And in English, these are the key writings that we're studying. And, and I love that um, idea that they could have that knowledge and it would just click. I love that, the idea of it just clicking as well. So thank you so much. Um, so we're now going to move on to a little bit of, of pedagogy. And we've spoken about the relationship of curriculum and pod pedagogy with curriculum being the what and pedagogy being the how. And before we get into this idea of, of pedagogy, I'm going to ask you about the pedagogical the, the pedagogical delusions. Mm -hmm. But can you share this idea that you write about about best bets and the importance mm -hmm. of cognitive science? Yeah, so so, so best bets. That's not a term uh, that I've coined. Um, that's uh, Lee Elliott Major and Steve Higgins, I think. Uh, from their book What Works, mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's a really, really useful idea um, that it's not a case of specific teaching or non-specific teaching, uh, direct interactive instruction or student-led learning. Um, it's not a case of one or the other. Um, it depends on where students are in the learning sequence, that journey from novice to expert, um, and to some extent it depends on what we are actually teaching. Um, the same pedagogy will not always be equally effective um, when we're teaching two different things. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is to consider what, what the best bet would be by that, the, the most effective pedagogy to teach whatever it is that we're wanting to teach. And 
so that we're not just having a guess, um, a shot in the dark. What I'm arguing is that we really, all of us, teachers, school leaders, need to continuously upskill ourselves in terms of our knowledge of what educational research suggests makes high quality teaching um, and what cognitive science suggests about that as well. And it's the two, the two parts going together, educational research and cognitive science. The more we understand about both, the more empowered we are to think, well, this is most likely, or this is more likely to work than that. Uh, we can never be certain. We can never be certain, um, but we're, we're betting. We're thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to be teaching this and students are roughly here in the learning sequence, then my best bet is to go with this and let's see how we do. No, certainly. I love that idea of best bets and that kind of reflection that we'll never really, really be sure but there are things that can guide us as, as well. And um, I've explored a lot of cognitive science on this podcast yeah. and with others. And we're going to come back to that a little bit when we talk about the, the pedagogical principles that you, that you propose. Um, but can I ask you to talk about the pedagogical delusions? You work your way down from 10 to 1 pedagogical delusions. Can you share some of them with us, please? That was quite fun writing, actually. That, that became quite a big chapter. Um, I, I ended up splitting it in two. Mm -hmm. So we've got pedagogical delusions part one and pedagogical delusions part two. Um, we'll go down from 10, Darren, but we maybe won't explore all of them. Mm -hmm. um, 10, uh, the motivo motivational messages and praise delusion. Um, in summary, it's uh, about the fact that, that if we if praise in itself and motivational messages in itself, uh, that that's not... These are, the, these are not the things that are actually going to motivate students. They actually, they often end up leading to students being switched off. Uh, I think I give uh, an example of my husband, Jamie, on the golf course. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I keep trying to give him a motivational message about hitting a seven iron. You know, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. But he's not doing it. And I, I suggest I'm more likely to get the seven iron through my skull than I am <laughs> to see him hit a good shot. Because what he really needs to motivate him is evidence of success. And once he starts to see evidence of success, that is what becomes motivating. So that's what that delusion is really getting at. Mm -hmm. um, the written feedback delusion is number nine. That's the idea that, that people have heard that, that feedback has a high effect size. Uh, we, we see that in John Hattie's work. We see it in the work from the Education Endowment Foundation. Uh, we hear a lot of people saying feedback. That's, that's really, really key to moving learning forward. And they're absolutely right. But what it doesn't say is that feedback needs to be written. And that's where a lot of schools have gone wrong because they walk into, school leaders walk into classrooms and they look for evidence of feedback. So they open jotters um, and they don't see any written feedback. And then the teacher is criticized for that. But actually, the most effective feedback often, not always, but often is not written feedback. It's verbal feedback because you, 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 can, you, can, you can get into a conversation with students in a way that you can't with the written feedback. Written feedback takes an awful lot of time to write. And if you've got a class of 30 students, mm -hmm. is that actually effective use of your time? Or would it be better to scan their work, the product, um, say, and, and then jot down uh, some whole class feedback messages, which you, you share at the start of the next lesson, and maybe sit down with one or two and say, well, that was particularly good. I really like this because I saw you did this 
uh, this could be even better if you did that. Th that sort of idea, but the fact that feedback needs to be written, I think, is a delusion. So that's what nine is. Um, eight, textbooks and worksheets delusion. It's this idea that textbooks and worksheets have no place in a 21st century classroom um, because they're dull, they hold learning back. Um, rubbish. Um, you look at texts like Lucy Crehan's wonderful Cleverlands, and she ends up concluding towards the end of that book that one of the features of the highest performing educational systems in the world is a high quality textbook. So actually one of the things that we could do in education today is start to invest some money nationally in the development of high quality textbooks. Um, yeah, that's what that one's about. They're not old fashioned and too prescriptive. They're actually really, really necessary. And if we're talking about developing literacy, then we need students to be able to engage with high quality texts, reading to themselves and reading aloud, for example. So that's what that's all about. I'll pause, Darren, if you want to, to say anything. No, I love that about, about textbooks. I read, I, mean, I, I got that out of uh, Lucy Crane's book as well. And, and Dylan William also mentions that in creating the schools, our children, children need a high quality yeah. textbook. And I love what you said about literacy, if we can have children reading um, in and around the subjects mm -hmm. and every subject to go, that's going to improve. I give an example of a worksheet. Uh, you know, worksheets can be rubbish in themselves. Of course, they can, but it depends. And it depends on the worksheet. Um, and there, there are bodies like, say, the Royal Society of Chemistry. I, I picked that because of my my chemistry teaching background. They have produced wonderful worksheets which are designed to really drill down into common misconceptions that students have, um, and the impact that they can have on teaching and learning is absolutely huge. So that's what that delusion is all about. Um, seven is the higher order thinking delusion. I talk about it in the first book. The idea that higher order thinking is more important than the opposite, lower order thinking. But it's not because the lower order thinking, that building of the knowledge base, student knowledge and understanding so that they can then do things with it, like become analytical and evaluative. Well, that's as important, if not more important than the top of what is the Bloom's taxonomy pyramid. That's what people are thinking about here. Uh, because you, you need that in order to get to the top. Uh, the idea that, that a school leader could walk into a random lesson and expect to see higher order thinking and, and schools being criticised in inspection reports because there's not enough evidence of higher order thinking. Well, hang on a minute. You, you, all you've seen is a snapshot in time. Uh, it depends where students are in the, in the learning sequence. And more often than not, they're going to be in the early to mid stages, in which case you, you may not see evidence of higher order thinking. It should be much more about how students are built, uh, teachers are building the knowledge structure so that students can think at a higher level. So that's what that one's about. The closed questions delusion, uh, again, this is to do with inspection reports often. Um, too many, too many closed questions, not enough open questions. Well, uh, open questions and closed questions are equally valuable. Sometimes we really do need to find out specifically what students know or don't know. A closed question is the best bet to do that. Sometimes we want uh, to find out more than that. Um, we're, we're, we're wanting to, to find out as the teacher where we're starting from. And, and sometimes a, an open question can be useful to do that. Write down everything you know about assets. That would be incredibly formative to me as a teacher. So I'm arguing here that it's, it's not that open questions are better than closed questions, it's that they're, they're both equally valuable. 
Um, five is the group work delusion. Um, again, inspection reports, not enough group work. Um, well, 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 actually hang on, um, because is group work going to be the best pedagogy to achieve what you want to achieve? I've seen too many lessons where the, the learning that the teacher wants the students to achieve could have been achieved very, very quickly, certainly much, much quicker than it was when students were put into groups because they simply did not know enough collectively about what, what they were meant to be discussing. And it just became a form of discovery learning from each other. Uh, and students just end up getting frustrated with it. And you actually see behavior start to, to deteriorate in a class. So mm -hmm. that's what that one's about. Fourth, the differentiation delusion. Um, I talk about that a lot in this book and the third book, um, and I touched on it in the first book. Um, really what I'm saying is that we don't have a common understanding across, across the profession of what we mean by differentiation. Mm -hmm. I'm arguing quite strongly that if we mean differing levels of support and challenge in response to the evidence that we're seeing, great, that's good teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're talking about having different learning intentions or success criteria for different students, setting different tasks for different students, that's not. That will ultimately hold learning back. You will create achievement gaps. So that's what that one's about. The active learning delusion is the idea that um, to be active, you have to be up out, out of your seat and moving around uh, for no apparent reason. The, the way that we're going to learn this is through a carousel activity, really. Um, it becomes a glorified version of Chinese whispers. What we really are looking for <laughs> is, is active learning in terms of thinking, yes. actively engaged, thinking about specific content. Uh, the behavior delusion, um, oh, okay, this is, this, is, this is to do with the idea that we don't need sanctions in classrooms or schools, mm -hmm. that everything can be addressed through a restorative conversation. Uh, that's, that's nice in an idealistic world, but I, I tell you what, the reality is that that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I, I've just seen far too many examples of that. Yes. Um, th there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a balance needs to be struck between um, having clear sanctions and using restorative approaches. Mm -hmm. um, my preferred terminology for, for what classroom discipline should really look like is warm strict. Yes. Yeah, which um, I think comes from Dublin. Mm -hmm. And number one, uh, the biggest delusion I think pedagogically is the student-led learning delusion that uh, we should be seeing more student-led learning in schools. Um, I really don't think that we should because I actually think that um, poor teaching, poor teacher-led learning will often lead to better learning than good student-led learning. Uh, I actually think that e even poor teacher-led learning will lead to more learning. Uh, the issue with teacher-led learning is not that in itself, that we need to make that better. If we're seeing issues with that, then we need to support our teachers to make that better. Um, it's this learning sequence that we talked about again. So yeah, that's the top 10 pedagogical delusions. No, certainly. I, I love that. I like the, love that last one about student-led learning. And, and you quote uh, uh, Clark et al. And, who say the past half century of empirical research has provided overwhelming and unambiguous evidence that for everyone but experts, partial guidance during, during instruction is significantly less effective and efficient than full guidance. And you go beautifully into Teaching Delusion 3, where you, you capture elements of great teaching and share that. I'm going to can I stick with teaching delusion two and come to pedagogical principles in a moment? But I really enjoyed some of that and the delusions. And I think we all know about that, the, the behavior delusion and this idea of is, is your 
less than worth yeah. behaving for. Yeah. All seen uh, group work. Um, it's a really offensive comment, that. We should call that out. I think I do in the book. It's a really you, offensive comment. You, you certainly do. A student should be expected to, to behave in, 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 all, in all our lessons and then um, we should deal with beha behaviour with, with sanctions and consequences, then bring in res restorative Converse conversations but I think what we get mixed up is we go straight to restorative conversation and it's often three days later when they come back yeah. from class rather than yeah maybe it wasn't a very good lesson but that doesn't excuse the poor behavior um maybe maybe the teacher was just having a bad lesson <laughs> that happens to everybody uh, if there's a consistent pattern of lessons that aren't particularly great well well maybe that needs to be addressed in a different way the teacher needs support it but uh we're not excusing poor behavior no, no, certainly, absolutely not. Thank you for that, and and I love what you say about um, differentiation, about challenge and support. Because I think far too often we give worksheets. I think I had Joe Facer on. She quoted Bart Simpson. Um, yeah, you're you're slowing me down to catch me up, and it just That's doesn't right. make any sense when you think about it like that. And I, I love um, the ones around around group work because. I listened to a great podcast, uh, Ollie Lovell's podcast with Sammy, Sammy Kempner, and, and he uses group work, but a question he asks before he does so to himself is, is the knowledge in the room mm. before he goes into group work? So that accountability measure. And if I could jump in there, Darren, um, somebody who I think you worked with as well and sadly passed away last year, my former art teacher and colleague, Christine Halliburton, who worked at Eyemouth High School and I say in the Teaching Delusion 2 that the cover is dedicated to Christine because uh, she, she chose that cover for me. Um, she, she, the, the, one of the deputies at the time um, was always going on at her about the fact that there was a lack of group work in her lesson and she, she basically said, um, will you convince me that what I'm trying to teach these students in these art classes is better taught through group work and hand on heart that's what we will do. But the better bet was not the was not group work, not in her opinion, and and a lot of research evidence would back that up as well. Um, it's there's something wrong with with any broad brush strokes principle whereby we're trying to to say well everybody needs to start doing more group work for the sake of it. Uh, if group work is the best way to teach something, mm -hmm. then absolutely that's what we'll do. But as I think you were alluding to there with your comment about knowledge, Darren. The point at which group work would become more useful for learning is further down the learning sequence once that knowledge has started to, to develop and take root. Certainly, and that would be what you write in teaching the first teaching in your book about moving from specific teaching mm -hmm. to non-specific teaching. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that. We're now going to move on to, to pedagogical principles, and you have 10 pedagogical principles. So let's run down them from one to ten and and what i'll do is i'll read them out yeah and they and then i'll ask you to respond with a little summary of them so your first pedagogical principle is the most important consideration is the extent to which all students are learning what we plan for them to learn definitely that's the most important uh, that all students are learning what we plan for them to learn this is us coming back to curriculum again mm -hmm. Um, it's, the it's the principle that links the clearest to the curriculum. Um, we need to be crystal clear in our own mind what specifically we are teaching our students. Uh, and I would argue uh, that that needs to be uh, clear for that lesson. We need to be crystal clear in our own mind what the learning we, we hope will 
what learning we hope will happen in that lesson. It's why I believe that specific learning intentions are very important for lessons. I fully accept that the learning intention may not be achieved for a whole variety of reasons, in which case it carries on over into the next lesson. Nobody is saying that you have to be rigidly tied to it's this learning intention for this lesson, lesson one, and then in lesson two, it must be a different learning intention. Nobody's saying that. But you have to be crystal clear in your own mind about what the specific learning you hope to achieve is in this particular lesson. It affects everything. It affects how you are planning the lesson. It affects the pedagogy that you are including. It, it affects how you are responding to evidence of learning in the lesson in real time. If you are not clear about what specifically you want all of your students to learn, then the pedagogies will be unfocused and it's unlikely that you will achieve the learning you are hoping to. Certainly, thank you so much. And it, and it brings us on, once we've, we've, we've been specific about that um, content and we're getting all students to learn what we plan for them, your second pedagogical principle is learning usually requires deliberate effort. <laughs> yep. There are some things that we just learn. Um, we know that from, from real life experience. There are some things that we just learn, but most things uh, we actually have to make a deliberate effort to learn. Certainly most of the things that we're trying to teach students in school, there has to be a deliberate attempt made to learn these things. Um, I argue that it, it's tempting to think of learning as happening like diffusion, whereby knowledge moves from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. The area of high concentration is the teacher, a textbook, a video. And we think that just because something is said or seen, heard, that it's learned. And of course it's not. There has to be something that happens in between, uh, which is what the, the third principle gets into. Certainly, and that third principle is, we need to plan with working memory and long-term memory in mind. Can you explain what is meant by that, please? So, we have two memory compartments, working memory, long-term memory. Working memory is where thinking happens and long-term memory is where the storing happens. Um, we tend to learn what we think about. Um, learning will typically happen when people think hard about specific things. That's Robert Cole. Memory is the residue of thought, Daniel Willingham. Um, this whole idea of learning not happening like diffusion, high concentration to low concentration, what needs to happen in between is a deliberate attempt to think about specific things. Um, if, if there is that thinking going on, thinking hard about specific things, then it is much more likely that the shift will happen from working memory and into long-term memory. Learning is the development of long-term memory through the accumulation of knowledge. That's the definition that I've, I've, I've proposed, which it builds on the Sweller definition definition that, that learning is a change in long-term memory. You can take your pick which one you're going with, it doesn't matter. The point is that learning is the development or a change in long-term memory. How do you bring that about? Through thinking, which happens in working memory. Uh, thinking can only happen in working memory if information is first taken in. So that's why we need students to be paying attention, number one. Then they need to understand uh, what, 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 what they're actually paying attention to. Uh, and then think about it. So we're trying to design pedagogies which are best for getting students to think about specific content. It's why group work often isn't a particularly effective pedagogy. One, because not enough students in the group are actually thinking about anything. Mm -hmm. And it can be very, very difficult for the teacher to control what the group is thinking about. 
No, it cer- certainly is. And and kind of going on to the next one quite smoothly there is, is this idea of being busy and learning are not the same thing because perhaps what you're saying that's not there. Children might look busy, but they might not be learning anything. So can you share the, the distinction between the two? So being busy activity is any activity which keeps students occupied. They, they are doing things, but it doesn't get them to think hard enough about the specific content that we want them to be learning. So it's that, it's, it's a lack of thinking about specific content, which makes it a being busy activity as opposed to a learning activity. Mm-hmm. A learning activity, the, a learning activity which is the best bet to be so, is one that gets students to think hard about specific content. So what we need to do is to consider what the activities are in any particular lesson. Now, clearly, all activities are going to involve busyness of some kind. An activity, by, by definition, involves you doing something. Mm-hmm. We just need to keep clear in the distinction between what I'm calling a being busy activity, which is you're not thinking about specific content, and a learning activity, which is that you are. So I'm suggesting that the following are typically uh, being busy activities, um, cutting things out, colouring things in, completing a word search, copying from the board, answering questions when the answers can just be copied from somewhere, transferring information from one format to another, but without having to think about it, like when students make a poster with their notes in front of them, talking to a partner about something when neither student knows much about what they are talking about, moving around the room for no reason other than to be out of their seats, such as to get information from different stations. Certainly, thank you. And and it goes back to the second one about requiring deliberate effort. We want to give them tasks where they're going to put in effort, think about the the learning and hopefully transfer that learning from the working memory to the long-term memory. So it's nice how it all links there. In Pedagogy 5, I really like principle number five. It says desirable difficulties propel learning forward. What do you mean by desirable difficulties? Yeah, so this is not an original term either. I, you know, I'm a magpie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but desirable difficulties, that's the Robert and Elizabeth Bjork uh, term. Um, but just because we've asked a question, say, um, and students have to think about it, well, how hard are they thinking about it? Um, how, how, how difficult is it um, in terms of what they already know or can do? So an example that I often give is, um, let's say this is an imaginary lesson on the greenhouse effect. And over the course of 40 minutes or so, there's content taught on the greenhouse effect. And then the exit ticket says something like, um, true or false, we have been learning about the blue house effect. Now, does that get students to think? Well, well, any question does. So they're, they're thinking a little bit. But are they thinking hard about specific content? No. That's not a question that's really challenging their thinking in that way. Is there a difficulty there? Not enough of a difficulty. That's, that's too easy. Um, you can go the other way, of course, and you, you can ask questions that are just too difficult. Um, students don't have enough knowledge themselves to work with. They, they don't have any realistic chance of being able to answer that question. So that's too difficult. Um, a desirable difficulty, that's the sweet spot in the middle. I refer to it as the Goldilocks principle. Yes. Um, I think I also use an analogy. It might not be in this book. It might be in book three, but to do with weightlifting. So you might correct me on this, Darren, uh, with your, your, your PE background. But if you're lifting weight, you're trying to build muscle. That's what you're trying to do. But you're lifting weights that are just too light. 
Well, you're not going to build muscle as effectively as you could. The flip side is you're lifting weights that are just far too heavy. You're not going to build muscle as effectively as you could. There is a sweet spot. That's the desirable difficulty. No, certainly. Thank you. And I love that weightlifting analogy for, for us there. Um, pedagogical principle six is, I really like this. I really, really like this one. Um, a teaching learning gap is inevitable, but reducible. So what is the teaching learning gap and how can we reduce it? What is taught is not necessarily learned. In fact, it won't usually be learned, certainly not initially. So there's a gap between what we are teaching and what students are learning. That's completely natural. We just have to accept that's there. What we need to do is find out about the size of the gap. Um, how, how much of a, a gap is there between what we're taught and students are learning? And then we need to close the gap. So assessment is the key to both. Assessment is what will measure the gap for us, helps us to find out to what extent what we are teaching is actually being learned, and will help us to reduce the gap. Why? There's a number of reasons. One is to do with um, the testing effect. The testing effect is this idea that each time we ask students to recall knowledge from long-term memory, the memory of it gets strengthened. So each time we are asking a student which gets them to think and, and we're checking, because I'm arguing that checking and testing and assessment are really synonymous terms. Each time we're doing that, we're actually starting to close the gap because each time students are, are retrieving information from long-term memory, um, we're strengthening the memory that they have of it. We can also, as teachers, respond to that. So that's what we mean by um, formative assessment. Um, it's, it's, it's assessment which we're using um, for the purposes of feedback. Feedback to ourselves as the teacher so that we can respond to it in this lesson or a future lesson. Uh, and so that in turn, we can give feedback to students which moves learning forward. So I think that's really what I mean by it, Darren. No, certainly, thank you. I love this idea of formative assessment and that underpins this idea of checking for understanding. Can it un I think anyway underpins pedagogical principle number seven and it's something that I try and be mindful of as a teacher with my classes and I'm sure many others do. And that is the learning of one or two students tells us nothing about the learning of everyone. That's right. Um, it goes back to chapter two in the first book, uh, which is called The Capital of Australia. And if you ask the question, what is the capital of Australia to a class of 30 students and somebody puts up their hand and says Canberra and you say, yep, and you use that as a proxy that everybody in the class knows that that's Canberra. Well, that, that's not right. And, and if you think just because it was said, you asked the question, a student gave the answer, maybe you even repeated the answer loud enough so that everybody could hear it. Uh, I'm prepared to bet that a little bit later in the lesson or the start of the next lesson, if you picked a different student, uh, there's every chance that they, they won't have that. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're guessing here because we don't have evidence the way that, that, the way that question is asked, we don't have evidence of the learning of everyone. And if we go back to principle one, we said, well, the most important principle is the extent to which all students are learning what we plan for them to learn. So one, two, 10 in the class of 30, no, that, that's not good enough. We, we need to find out about the learning of everyone. That's challenging. There's no doubt about it. But the key tool is the show me board. Yes. I've argued so many times that we should be seeing show me boards in almost every lesson because you ask a question and the answer goes on the show me board and they hold it up. It's not the only way to do it, but it's a really, really effective way to do it.
It's a great way to see all, all students thinking. And I, I, I certainly use that a lot of my lessons and, and I'm quite forceful in getting them to, to hover their board so no one else can see it before they, they show. And yeah. I, I love it. And the children like that, they like kind of hiding it from their peers, but it's a great way to quickly see and, and gather data on, on what the students are thinking. And moving on to pedagogical principle eight, producing product doesn't necessarily evidence learning can you share your thinking behind that one i'm thinking about the sort of lesson let's say we're talking about the causes of acid rain that's the specific content that we want students to learn about the causes of acid rain and the pedagogy we choose to learn that is we say to students okay well you've got um 20 minutes to go away and research that um, on the internet and what i want you to do is to then create a powerpoint presentation which summarizes the causes of acid rain and that there's the product and then using that um as a proxy for learning. But the, the PowerPoint presentation that the students have created is not evidence of learning because it is not evidence of a change, the development of long-term memory. The PowerPoint presentation is evidence that students could find information in one place that's online and transfer it to another place. That's the PowerPoint presentation. So we need to be, um, we, need, we need to think about the evidence that we are using uh, to decide to what extent learning has happened. That, that's really what that point is getting at. No just sense. because something is there in a jotter, in a PowerPoint presentation, et cetera, just because it is there, that is not evidence of learning. What is most important is what is in the students' heads. And it's why in the first Teaching Delusion book, I give an anecdote um, involving myself um, and, and a principal teacher who had criticized me because when they'd been into my class, there wasn't any evidence um, that I had marked their jotters. And, and I said, I don't care what's in their jotters. I care what's in their heads. She'd actually gone so far, actually, Darren, as to suggest that the students couldn't have got the marks that they achieved in their end of topic test based <laughs> on what was in their jotters. I'm like, well, yeah, I, as I say, I don't care what's in the jotter, it's what's in their head. And, and that's, that's the point. The product doesn't evidence the learning. No, certainly, if I can, if I can share, can I diverge a little bit? So when I interviewed Jo Facer, she shared in her book, um, Simplicity Rules, an anecdote, and it goes back to what we said earlier about written feedback. When she was a line manager, she had a teacher who didn't write a lot of feedback in students' books, and she questioned why she didn't do that, and she regrets that now. Mm -hmm. But the teacher kind of said, well, I don't need to. And then it was the same thing. The students performed extremely well on their mm -hmm. tests, but there wasn't any feedback in the book because the feedback was verbal and it was between the teacher and the student. And, and yeah. it's a fascinating one because it's the same what you say there about, about the learning. It's, it's in their heads and as long as it's in yeah. their heads, it doesn't need to be. And I just want to, I guess just to be clear, I'm saying it doesn't necessarily evidence learning because clearly it is product, which, which will be the evidence ultimately. Um, but it's how that product is produced. Mm -hmm. um, has, it, has it been produced from long-term memory? That would be stronger evidence of learning. No, certainly, thank you. And, and it brings us on to principle nine, and you mentioned this earlier on in our conversation, and that is the best way to teach novices is different from the best way to teach Everts. And I'm guessing this alludes to the idea of majority of the time using specific teaching and some of the time using non-specific teaching. That's exactly right. Um, in the early stages of any learning sequence, as we are building the knowledge structure, the research is clear that 
direct interactive instruction blended with formative assessment, that will typically be the best bet. I frame that as specific teaching. As students develop knowledge and expertise, well, by definition, they're becoming more expert. There is strong research evidence telling us that novices and experts think and learn differently. Therefore, the best way to teach novices will typically be different from the best way to teach experts. Uh, more directed approaches for novices, uh, there can be real benefit for having less directed approaches um, once students are more expert. And we're talking about particular learning sequences here, to be clear, we're not talking about uh, chronological age, we're not talking about a distinction between primary two and uh, S2, we're, we're not talking about that. Um, whenever you're starting to learn anything new, let's say we're in fifth year at secondary school, uh, you are novices in particular knowledge domains uh, in a particular learning sequence, and then you will develop more expertise. So that's what this principle is about. Brilliant, thank you. And that brings us perfectly on to pedagogical principle 10, which is effective teaching blends specific and non-specific teaching approaches. Yeah, I think I probably blended principle nine and 10 <laughs> there in my answer. But um, yeah. It shows, how, it shows how much, there's so much of that that, yeah, a lot of that when I read that, a lot of things just pieced together and, and you've brought a lot of educational research and cognitive science together within your, pedag your pedagogical principles and they really can guide us and, and you take them on in teaching delusion. Three, um, as I said to you off air, like I, I had about four pages of questions to ask you, but I'm going to stop it there. I'm conscious that I've, I've stolen so much of your evening, Bruce. No, I've enjoyed it, Darren. Um, no. Thank you. No worries, thank you. I love exploring these things with you. You're so clear and articulate in, in how you present them and you break them down so beautifully. And, and, and you said on Kate Jones's um, Teachers Talk Radio that you, some people reference that when you're writing is much like the way you're speaking it, and it really, really is. So if people don't have the books yet, I'd encourage every teacher in, in Scotland, England, Wales, Canada, to, to buy the trilogy and I, I, wrote, I wrote a wee review, I had the privilege of reading Teaching Delusion 2 and I wrote that it really will challenge your long held beliefs and, and, and make you think as well. So thank you for that. So with that in mind, can you please share with listeners where they can buy the trilogy and also where they can get in contact with you and, and ask you some questions? So the trilogy is published by John Cat Educational. Um, people can buy it from the John Cat shop online, but it's available um, on Amazon. It's available Waterstones, not in the shop, I believe, on the website. WH uh, Smith, again, I think, uh, on the website, not in the shop. Yeah, we're not at that stage yet. <laughs> Nearly. And how can, they, how can they get in touch with you, Bruce? Yeah, so I've got a website, um, which is theteachingdelusion.com. That's got a link to uh, an email address. Um, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Um, my handle is at ttdelusion. Um, yeah, via my website or via Twitter, that's probably the best way to do it. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much, Bruce. I really encourage people to, to engage and, and, and read the books. They really are. Um, Great talking to you, Darren. And thanks for being such a strong supporter of the books. Certainly will. So... We're now going to move on to my quick fire questions. I've got all new quick fire questions because as we know, I had, I had quite a long break from the podcast. So I like to mix things up. So I've got three new ones. Are, are you ready for them, Bruce? I'm ready. So first one to you is what are you reading currently? 
just finished um, Kate Jones' new book uh, as part of the In Action series on formative assessment. Really recommend that. I am rereading at the moment um, Harry Fletcher Wood's Responsive Teaching, which is excellent. No, a really good book. And, and I interviewed Kate about the five formative assessment strategies in, in action a, a few weeks ago, and that podcast should be available by now. Um, second question to you, Bruce, this is a really fascinating one for me. And can I ask, what is your current professional development focus? The focus for me over the course of the last 18 months has really been uh, upskilling myself in terms of um, knowledge and understanding of what makes a high quality curriculum um, and, and a continuing development of my knowledge and understanding about what makes high quality pedagogy. I think Darren, that will always be my focus. I, um, I argue in my books that teaching and learning needs to be the, the central area of focus. I talk about teaching centered leadership mm -hmm. and for me, you can, you can never learn enough about these things. Like we said earlier, the curriculum should always develop and evolve. So um, my professional learning is really a, my, my, the continuous development of my knowledge around curriculum and pedagogy. Well, thanks so much for sharing. And my final question to you, Bruce, what do you love most about being a teacher? Teaching is the best job in the world. Um, Working in a school is an honour and a privilege. Um, I am the head teacher, director of Berwickshire High School. Um, what I like most about that is, is, is seeing what a difference uh, each day makes uh, to the lives of every student who comes to our school um, through their day-to-day -day experiences. Uh, I get tremendous satisfaction at working with teachers who are committed to developing their own practice uh, no matter how experienced they are um, and the improvement that comes about um, is so motivating to teachers. Um, I've always argued that the better that we get at what we, we do, the more we enjoy our jobs, the better the experiences and the outcomes for the students who come to our school. And my, one of my key purposes as the head teacher is, is to set the, the direction and to build the culture uh, a culture of professional learning, that's what we're going for in school. And it's not a culture which Berwickshire High School had uh, 12 months ago. And the culture of professional learning there today is fairly strong. And uh, I take a lot of satisfaction um, from, from, from watching the impact of that culture, both on the satisfaction of, 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 of staff through their work um, and the same for students through their experience. Right, that's so wonderful to hear and thanks so much for sharing that that brings us to the end so all that's left me to do is thank you so so much for giving up your time and sharing all your wonderful insights thanks darren i'll speak again soon i'm sure you certainly will thanks for listening to this episode of becoming educate as ever i would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via twitter at dn leslie or via email so that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from, so that many, many others can access Become an Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Become an Educated, and I do hope to see you there.